You can go and have a seat, BCC. Good morning. And like uh, Pastor Jeff said, at this time, uh, the first through fifth graders can go ahead and be dismissed to their classes as uh, kids ministry kicks back off this morning. We're certainly excited about that. Uh, so I hope you guys have a, a good time as you head out there. But let's go ahead and get into our Bibles uh, together this morning. Uh, so if you would grab your Bibles, your smartphones, your tablets, or uh, whatever it is that you tend to use to get your eyes on God's Word, and would you meet me again this week in Esther chapter 1. We'll be continuing our fall series this morning through the book of Esther called When God Seems Silent. And so if you don't have a, a Bible with you, I would love it if you could uh, have it in front of you so you can follow along with us this morning. There's a couple of ways you could do that. Uh, you could just pull out a phone and Google uh, Esther chapter 1 ESV and it'll pop right up. Uh, or uh, if you would prefer a, uh, a physical Bible, there's a rack of Bibles in the back that you could grab one of those, make use of it. Uh, if you don't have one of the, of, a Bible to call your own, we would love for you to just take that and make it your own uh, as our gift to you. Uh, but if you are visiting with us this morning, I want to extend my welcome to you as well. Uh, my name is Andrew Watkins. Uh, I have the privilege of serving here at BCC as the lead pastor. Uh, so let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get started and get into God's Word together this morning. Father, we thank you for the worship, the opportunity to worship you this morning, the worship that we've been able to give you this morning. We, as our desire that that is pleasing before you, that you are glorified in our service so far this morning. Pray for the kids' ministry that's starting this morning, for the children and teachers, that you would be present with them as your word goes forth over there in the other building. Father, we ask that as we come to your word that you would be moving among us this morning. I thank you that we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that every word of Scripture is inerrant and inspired. As your word says, it is profitable for teaching and reproof and training in righteousness, Father. So we ask that as we come to your word this morning in Esther, that uh, you would be challenging us, convicting us, and encouraging us this morning as we look to your word. And Father, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, a lot of names might come to your mind when we start talking about wicked world rulers. In ancient history, we could uh, name people like Nero, who uh, ruled the ancient Roman Empire with an iron fist and persecuted the early church. In more modern history, we would throw out names like Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Benito Mussolini. All of these names are familiar to us. In more recent history, we could mention people like Saddam Hussein or Osama bin Laden. Of course, every single one of those names that I've mentioned so far is dead, but the problem of wicked world leaders still exists. There's always someone waiting in the wings to, to pick up that mantle of being the wicked world ruler and just keep going where the last guy left off. Today we could point to people like Kim Jong-un of North Korea or the Ayatollah Khomeini of Iran. Now you don't need to be super aware of a world history or current events to know that all of the people I just mentioned are extremely wicked and evil people. You probably hear those names and even have an emotional reaction to them. It's understandable if you were to uh, have a little bit of fear rise in your heart when you hear those names. It's understandable to fear people that have done lots of damage and hurt many people and, and to know that if those people had the chance, they would do the same to you and your family and your friends. It's understandable to fear wicked world, world leaders like that. But one thing we don't have to fear at all is that wicked world rulers will ever be able to prevent God from working in any way, shape, or form. 
The truth is that God is never any less able to work when a wicked ruler is ruling than he is when a godly ruler is ruling. Now, that might be really easy for us to affirm in some uh, at least uh, mental way that we can, we can think, well, we can affirm that truth. I, I understand that's true, but how much harder is it to actually trust that truth when it gets involved with our own personal lives? You don't have to look any further than our upcoming election in our own country to see that. No matter which end of the political spectrum you find yourself on this morning, there's a sense in which you might be tempted to believe that if your preferred candidate doesn't win in November, then maybe God isn't going to work in the way that you think he will if your candidate wins. The reality is, that's not true. And put your mind at ease this morning, righteous ruler or wicked ruler, God is still on the throne and God will still be at work. That's not just some old concept that we can look in Scripture and see, yeah, that might have been true then, but, but he, it's not that way now. I'm really afraid that if my guy doesn't win, then God might not be working. No, it's still true today. Just for an example, you don't have to look very far, do a whole lot of digging to understand um, a lot of the atrocities that the uh, Iranian rulers have done in recent history and even further back. But another question is, do you know where the fastest growing church in the world is today? Iran. God's still at work in Iran. Wicked rulers in Iran are not preventing God from working. Countries like Afghanistan and North Korea are also pretty high on that list of the fastest growing groups of Christians in the world. We could talk about a lot of reasons of why that might be, but the point carries that wicked rulers do not prevent God from working. They do not prevent him from accomplishing his plans. That's exactly what we're going to see in Esther chapter 1 this morning. If you haven't listened to last week's message uh, yet, if you, if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to listen to that. Don't, don't pull out earphones and do it right now or anything, but uh, go back and listen because last week we spent a little bit of time uh, giving some background information uh, and setting up the series so that we can understand really well what's going to happen, what we're going to be looking at in the book of Esther for the next couple of months. But just to catch you up in case you haven't, uh, Esther is a strange book of the Bible. Strange for a lot of reasons, but a top reason on that list of why it's a strange book is because God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. His name never shows up. No one prays. No one worships. In many ways, God seems silent. Esther is about God's providence. Esther is about God's providence, which is God's unseen hands leaving his fingerprints all over the seemingly mundane details of our ordinary lives. And we can trust that. We can trust that because he was doing that in Esther, he's doing that today. And so that's what we're looking at as our, with our series, When God Seems Silent. Last week we saw that God's people are exiled in worldliness. The worldly, arrogant King Ahasuerus of the Persian Empire was throwing a party to, have, to, to try to lure people into serving him and doing what he wanted them to do and then dangling all of the greatness of his kingdom in front of them to try to get them on board and then this morning, as we look into Esther chapter 1, we're going to see that uh, last week we used the word worldliness. Well, the, the, the notch is going to get turned up a little bit. We're going to move from worldliness to wickedness in this party. So here's our big idea this morning, our, our one-sentence overarching theme of this passage that's going to tie it together for us this morning. Our big idea is that God still works to accomplish his plans, even in the midst of wickedness. Again, God still works to accomplish his plans, even in the midst of wickedness. So from Esther 1, 10 through 22 this morning, we're going to see some truths that we can trust when we find ourselves surrounded by wickedness, when we find ourselves uh, living under the rule of wicked people. And here's the first. 
God still works in the midst of wicked behavior. God still works in the midst of wicked behavior. If you have your Bibles and you're at Esther chapter 1 already, look with me at verses 10 through 12, where the narrator of the book of Esther continues his story, and here's what he says. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehumen, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abiktha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. When we left Ahasuerus' party last week, uh, he was throwing this party to celebrate himself, and he had issued a royal decree to dictate how the drinking was going to go at his party. We said that the the normal custom for drinking and eating at a royal party in the palace was uh, that the guests would only eat and drink as much as and when the king himself would eat and drink. But we we said that, again, the the whole point of Esther chapter 1 is that Ahasuerus wants to make it very clear that he's a big deal. He's in charge. He gets to do what he wants. And so he says, you know what? I can change that. Uh, I'll make a royal decree. And so he made a royal decree that said, uh, you can drink however you want. You can drink as much as you want. You can drink as little as you want. Doesn't matter. It's up to you. But that's my decree. We're not, we're not dictating anything, even though I'm dictating in the fact that I'm not dictating. Uh, you can do what you want. And so now, apparently, Ahasuerus has decided to enroll himself in the as-much-as-you-want drinking plan for his own party. And in verse 10, it tells us that it's the, the seventh and the final day of this party, this feast, and Ahasuerus is drunk. It says that the heart of the king was merry with wine. We'll come back to that in a minute because Ahasuerus is about to make a terrible, wicked decision. Like we said last week, the whole point of this was to to show how awesome Ahasuerus thinks he is. And so in these first nine verses of the passage, uh, we saw him putting his pride on display and showing off his palace and, and showing off everything, all of his riches, his gold and silver couches, everything that money could buy, he was showing it off. We learned that his wife, Queen Vashti, wasn't at that party. She was off throwing a separate party, a separate feast for the women of the kingdom. And we we said that's a little strange, that that doesn't normally happen in the Persian Empire. But remember, throughout the book of Esther, we're going to see lots of coincidences that we know aren't really coincidences. They're God's providence. They're God's hand at work. So now in verse 10, Ahasuerus is drunk, and uh, we can just picture him saying to himself, well, I've already, it's the last day of this party. I've I've shown off my palace. I've I've shown off clearly how prideful I am. I've shown off my gold and silver couches. I've shown off my wine collection. All of this, what else can I do to impress my guests? Hmm. Maybe I'll show off my wife. And I know you guys can already see the writing on the wall here, but this is a terrible idea. The drunk king calls in a few of his servants and says, you, you go and get Queen Vashti, bring her here. Verse 11, the order he says is to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Now you might read that verse and think, well, that sounds a little arrogant. Sounds like he views his wife as a, as a trophy wife, and he's insisting on just showing her off to all of his drunk friends. But overall, on the scale of wickedness, maybe doesn't, seem overly terribly wicked, but you don't have to do a whole lot of digging and getting into the context of what's going on in this passage to realize that what's likely going on here is something much worse. See, it's not that King Ahasuerus wants 
Vashti to come and make the rounds at this social gathering, to go around to all of the tables and just chat with the guests so that they can say that, hey, I got to meet the, the beautiful queen of Persia. That, that, was, that was an awesome experience. No, that's not what's going on here. Historians in Jewish tradition, as recorded in the, the Targum, some ancient Jewish writings, tell us that when Ahasuerus sent for his wife Vashti to come wearing her crown, the command was really for her to come wearing her crown and only her crown. That's what's really going on here. It's that this drunk man wants to show his wife off, to have her appear naked in front of all of his drunk friends. Let me just stop us right here for a second and say that if that doesn't immediately repulse you and anger you this morning, something's wrong. This is a wicked man doing wicked things. If you're not bothered by the, the fact that this drunk man wants to parade his wife around in front of all of his drunk friends, then, then maybe your conscience has been seared. Maybe you've been spending too much time watching things on TV and watching things in movies or visiting websites that you shouldn't be visiting and watching things you shouldn't be watching that have dulled your conscience, that have seared your conscience and normalized this kind of wickedness. You should be able to feel the wickedness of what's going on in this text. You should be able to stop for a second and imagine, what if, what if Queen Vashti was your wife or your daughter or your sister or, or your mother? How, how would you feel about that? This is wickedness that we're seeing in this text. And I have to say that the point of this passage is not to overly deal with the dangers of drinking, but I'd be remiss if I didn't at least point your eyes in that direction, at least for just a moment. Now, you might say, well, well Scripture never tells us that, that drinking is a sin, and you'd be right there. It doesn't, but it does tell us that being drunk is a sin, and it has an awful lot to say about the wisdom of drinking. You can go home this afternoon and, and just read through Proverbs, take some time, and you will find over and over and over again that Proverbs warns us about the dangers of drinking. Let me summarize it for you. It's not a good idea. Drinking doesn't typically lead anywhere good. And chances are you already know that. Chances are, uh, if you're here this morning, chances are that you know someone whose marriage has been wrecked by the influence of alcohol. Chances are, if you're here this morning, you know someone whose family has been abused because of the influence of alcohol. Chances are you know someone whose body has been injured because they were in an accident that was because of the influence of alcohol. Chances are you know someone whose career has been shattered because of the influence of alcohol. Just in case you're here this morning and you don't, if somehow none of those uh, situations ring familiar to you, just follow along this morning at what happens in the rest of Esther chapter 1 because it's going to be very clear that this is not smart, that not all the damage is done here yet. So please hear me for just a second. Please be wise about alcohol. And by wise, I, I don't mean try to walk some tightrope of saying, well, I, I can drink, but I just got to make sure I don't drink enough. No, when I say be wise about alcohol, I mean go and read what Scripture has to say about it. See what Scripture says about the wisdom of alcohol and then apply that Scripture to your life. But to Vashti's credit, she says no. Not a chance of Hashuers. I'm not doing that. I'm not coming to that party. And it's a good thing she did. If your reaction here this morning is to say, well, well, Vashti should have listened to her husband, then let me just tell you, just stop it. No. No, she shouldn't. Not here. Not with this. This is wickedness. So what is the point? Well, up until this point, the entire book of Esther, like again, we've said so many times, is to say that Hashuerus thinks he's a big deal. 
He thinks he's in charge. He thinks, well, he knows he rules over most of the, the, the known world. And he thinks that he can get what he wants and do what he wants, no matter who it hurts. The entire point of this party was to make that clear to the people that he would have to then lead into to battle and expect them to obey him on the battlefield. So just imagine his reaction and the embarrassment at this party that is literally to show his servants how in charge he is when now his wife tells him no in the middle of his I'm in charge fest. You don't have to imagine for long. Verse 12 says this, that the, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. The point here is this. Ahasuerus is not as sovereign as Ahasuerus thinks he is. The point is only God is sovereign. Only God is truly and totally in charge. No matter how powerful a king thinks he is and no how, matter how much he thinks he's in complete control of the people under him, he doesn't have that kind of authority. No king has absolute sovereignty. How encouraging is that for us when we might find ourselves living under the rule of wicked rulers, or we might find ourselves in the workplace with a wicked boss, or maybe, maybe even sharing a house with a wicked spouse. How encouraging it to, is it for us to know that people in authority over us only have as exactly as much power as God lets them have, and only for as long as he lets them have it. They're never totally sovereign. They can't throw God off of his throne. Only God is sovereign, and he rules over all. Earlier this week, I saw a quote from the great hymn writer John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. That's what he's most famous for. But his quote said this, the top headline of every newspaper every day ought to say, the Lord reigns. Amazing point. Point being, when you, if you read the newspaper, if you were to open it up, the, 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 the top headline ought to say, the Lord reigns. If you're more of a social media person, when you log into social media, that the top post on your Facebook feed every single morning should be, the Lord reigns. When you, when you turn on the TV and, and you see the, the, the news scrolling across the bottom feed, what that should say every single morning is the Lord reigns. So take comfort in that. Cling to that truth in the middle of, of a season when where you're, you're worried about maybe being under a wicked ruler or remaining under a wicked ruler, wherever you fall in that. Hold on to that truth. The Lord still reigns. God's still on the throne here in Esther chapter 1, despite this wicked behavior that we see. Remember, God's not mentioned in the book of Esther, but we know he's there. We're tracking his providence. We're watching his unseen hand throughout this book. We're acting like detectives on a crime scene who are dusting for the fingerprints of God's providence in this story because we're about to see God's opening a door here. God's at work. Things might be wicked here, but he's still working. He's opening a door for what he's about to do next. So not only does God work in the middle of wicked behavior, but number two this morning, God still works in the midst of wicked counsel. God still works in the midst of wicked counsel. Look back with me at Esther chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. It says this, Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were vested in law in judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsena, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and of the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, 
but also against all the officials and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. Well, a couple of months ago, my family and I gathered around the TV to watch the launch of uh, the SpaceX uh, rocket Dragon carrying a NASA astronauts Bob, Bob Benkin and Doug Hurley to the International Space Station. As fascinating as it was to watch that, I, I've got to admit that at least throughout parts of the launch, I was holding my breath because we've seen space shuttle launches end in tragedy before. On January 18th, 1986, 73 seconds after liftoff, the Challenger exploded, killing all seven astronauts on board. After that tragedy, a, a presidential commission was launched to uncover the, the root of, the, of what happened there, what, what caused this tragedy and the commission said this, quote, it was due to a serious flaw in the decision-making process leading up to the launch. The problem wasn't that, was that NASA hadn't let anyone outside of the immediate decision-making process look at the plans. They didn't let anyone outside their, their immediate little circle of people look at it and see if there might have been any problems there. The two authors that were writing about this tragedy more recently uh, said this, so true, uh, smart people working collectively can be dumber than the sum of their brains. I think we, we've all can probably experience situations where we know that to be true, but that's what they said about this situation that caused the Challenger explosion. So the point is, when you're about to make a major decision, it's not good enough to get counsel. You've got to make sure you're getting wise counsel, good counsel, godly counsel. And we can see that in play here in verses 13 through 18. Because to use the words of that presidential commission, what we see in these few verses is a serious flaw in the decision-making process in the Persian Empire. Now you're probably thinking that these guys had to be smart enough to at least wait until they sobered up the next morning to, to make any major decisions and, and, and to figure out what they're going to do about this. Nope. No such luck for them. In fact, historians tell us that being drunk was actually a major part of the decision-making process in the Persian Empire. Uh, they believed that, that as they were drinking, even in delibor deliberating the, the most important matters of state, uh, they believed that if they were drunk, they had a closer connection to the spirit world, and, and so that, that would allow them to make decisions better. So they, they would do that, and then the next morning when they sobered up, they'd have someone read back to them the decisions that they made, and as long as they still agreed with it, then they would move forward with it. And a brilliant planning, I know. It's, these guys have their act together, that's for sure. But the drunk and angry Ahasuerus uh, brought together seven princes who were his astrologers and advisors, just like we see in, uh, in the book of Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar. He has these guys too, and they help him decide what to do. Just as a side note here, uh, if you know anyone who is uh, actively looking for uh, baby names, if they're about to have kids or grandkids or like that, I would really highly suggest that you point them towards the names uh, in verses 10 and 14. Uh, you cannot go wrong with names like Biztha, Bigfoot, and Carcass, so uh, point them in that direction, and you can thank me later. Um, but Ahasuerus, this drunk king, brings these guys together, and he's like, what's the plan, guys? What are we going to do here? How are we going to solve this problem? How are we going to get things under control? Now, this isn't in the text, but I, I really say, uh, I really want to imagine Ahasuerus kind of 
kicking and screaming on the, fo- on the floor like a three-year-old th- throwing a temper tantrum right here, just saying, Vashti wouldn't listen to me. She, she, she didn't obey me, and she hurt my feelings, so now what are we going to do? Not in the text, but that's how I, I view this uh, going down here, but maybe that's just me. But regardless, Memucan, uh, this other guy with a great name, speaks up, and he makes this whole thing a much bigger deal than it ever actually was in the first place. He says, listen, Ahasuerus, what she did against you wasn't just about you. It's against us. It's against the entire kingdom. And if word of this gets out, it's going to spread to all the women in all of the kingdom. And we just, we can't let that happen. I mean, this is going to be disastrous. So we've got to come, we've got to put our foot down right now. We've got to get this under control. We've got to, we've got to keep the, the women under wraps. We've got to solve all of this problem. Which brings us to an important point that needs to be said even a few thousand years after this situation, and even in the United States of America, and sadly, even in the church. Women are to be cherished, and valued, and loved, and honored, and protected. They're not property property to be used for service or pleasure. They are not servants. They are husbands. They are not your employee. They are not your servant. You as a husband are to be a sacrificial servant focused on lovingly leading her, not an iron-fisted dictator focused on keeping her in line. That's what Scripture tells us that our job as husbands is to be. The point of marriage is to put the gospel on display for the world to see. Your responsibility as a husband is to represent Christ. And nowhere in Scripture do we find that laid out more clearly than Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul spends a few verses here letting us know what the responsibilities of a husband should be. So just listen, in Ephesians 5, 25 through 33, this is what Paul says to the Ephesian church about being a husband. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. But we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Does anyone here think that what I just read describes in any way, shape, or form Ahasuerus as a husband? I'm going to go with a no on that one. But this is what husbands are called to. Husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. One commentator said this, if Christian husbands were more like Christ and less like Ahasuerus, perhaps we would find our wives more ready to submit to our leadership. It's hard to hear, but it's important to hear. What would be reflections of Christ? Ladies, I understand that you might be here this morning and you might personally know the pain of living with a wicked husband who did not or does not represent Christ well or at all. First, I want you to please hear me when I say that if you have been or are being abused, whether it's physical, sexually, emotionally, verbally, I want you to know that God loves you, and we love you, that Bethlehem Community Church is a safe place for you, 
and that we will do whatever we have to do to walk alongside you and with you and help you. I'm not naive enough to think that there's no one here this morning that might need to hear that right now. So if that's you, if you please again know that you are loved, that you are valued, please don't be afraid to reach out to us, whether it's in person after the service, whether it's uh, taking a prayer card and putting in whatever information you want to on that and putting it in the box in the back or, or getting in touch with the office or emailing us, calling us, connecting us with us on the website. But know that God loves you and we love you and we are with you. Second of all for us this morning, the reality is that Jesus is the only perfect husband. Jesus is a loving bridegroom and marriage, when done right, is to point to the gospel. So when Ephesians 5 says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, it's pointing to the fact that Jesus died to save sinners. Every single one of us in this room is a sinner, and because God is holy, he must punish sin. And apart from Christ, if we are not in Christ, our sin will be punished by us spending eternity in a literal physical place called hell where we will feel every single ounce of God's wrath against our sin. But God loved us so much that he sent Jesus, that perfect loving bridegroom, to come and live a perfect life and become our substitute and take, a, take the punishment for our sins on himself and to lay down his life for us, to give himself up for the church when he died on the cross in our place. And then he was buried and rose from the dead three days later, later to forever defeat sin and death. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, and you don't know what would happen if you were to die today, please know that the invitation of God's grace is open to you this morning. It doesn't cost you anything. You don't have to clean yourself up first. That's what grace is. It's, it's what Jesus did for you, not what you can do for yourself or not what you can do to please God. It's all in what Jesus did. The Bible says that we just need to repent and turn from our sins and place our faith, our hope, and our trust in Jesus and what he did for us on the cross not in what we can do, not in some, some sort of religion, but in what Jesus did for you. You can do that right now, right where you are, or love the opportunity to talk with you more about that after the service, but please don't leave here this morning without knowing where you stand with God. Because the reality is Jesus is the only perfect husband. Only Jesus can save. Only Jesus can transform hearts. Only Jesus can make bad husbands great pictures of the gospel. Only Jesus can minister to us in those ways. But if you haven't gotten it yet, again, what we see in Esther chapter 1 is a wicked situation. But God's still working. These wicked rulers aren't preventing God from working in the midst of their wicked behavior or wicked counsel. And finally, this morning, what we see is that God still works in the midst of wicked decrees. Again, God still works in the midst of wicked decrees. So one last time this morning, would you look back with me? at verses 19 through 22 of Esther chapter 1. Verses 19 through 22 says this. Memucan's still talking here, and he says, If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in his own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of the people. 
Well, it's not hard, again, to see as we look back in the last few verses that there was definitely a serious flaw in the decision-making process. Ahasuerus, as king, could have stopped it at any point. He could have said, no, no, we're not, we're not doing that. We're not going any further down that road. But he didn't. They kept going, and their advice only got worse. When it came time for the, uh, the, the, the presentation of the planning phase of this conversation, they said that the best thing to do, Ahasuerus, would be for you to issue a royal decree saying everything that just happened and banning Vashti from the kingdom, never to come back again, and then replace her with someone else. You see God's providence there? You see God's unseen hand at work? Suddenly there's a vacancy for the queen's job in Persia. God's working here. But their plan wasn't to put the royal decree out in a press release late on some Friday night when nobody would read it. Uh, they, their plan was to make this, this declaration as public as they possibly could. They want everyone to know about it so that all of the women in the Persian Empire suddenly will start obeying their husbands and honoring their husbands. And Ahasuerus is like, yeah, that's a fantastic idea. We're going with that plan right now. And so in verse 22, they sent letters out to everyone, everyone in the kingdom, in every language they could think of to say that, you know what, this is how we're doing it. This is, what, this is what's going on here. Now, now, first of all, I just want to say this. Back in verse 17, uh, these people were extremely worried about, their, their concern was, what if this gets out? What if the people actually hear about what happened here? And so I, I love how, again, brilliant these guys are at planning and making decisions. The fact that their, their solution to this is, you know what? Let's broadcast it to the entire kingdom because that's not going to tell anybody what actually happened. Again, great planning by these, these geniuses here. But second of all, think about this. Their plan to change the hearts of all the women in the Persian Empire was to release a royal decree. Anybody here really think that's going to work? Count me as a no on that one. Warren Wearsby said this, Are our hearts changed because kings issue decree or congresses and parliaments pass laws? How would the punishment of Vashti make the Persian women love their husbands more? Are love and respect qualities that can be generated in hearts by human fiat? The answer, of course not. Of course that's not going to work, but, but how often do we think that things, we can accomplish things that way? How often do we look at the wickedness around us and, and say to ourselves, you know what, if Congress would just pass a law or if the Supreme Court would just overturn that law, then you know what, things are going to be so much better here and people's hearts are going to be changed and we're going to start living in a, in a godly place again. Or how often do we think, you know what, if the CEO of my company would just change that policy, then all of the people that I work with would suddenly have changes of hearts and, and this would be so much of a better place. Friends, when you think that way, you're not placing your hope in God who still works even in the midst of wickedness. You're placing your hope in people or policies or political parties and in doing so, you're making them your God. But the reality is that's never going to work. Because just like only God is sovereign, not Ahasuerus, and only Jesus is the only perfect husband, not Ahasuerus, only the Holy Spirit can change hearts, not Ahasuerus. Let me just be extremely clear here again. What I am not saying is that Vashti or any of the, the women in the Persian Empire's hearts need to be changed, at least in the way that, that Ahasuerus and his advisors think it should. That's not what I'm advocating here for at all. Where I'm going with this is the question, where do you place your hope for changed hearts? I'm talking about things like parents. What's your plan to see your kids' hearts changed? Is it your rules or is it the Holy Spirit? Spouses, what's your plan to see your husband's or your wife's heart changed and softened? 
Is it your arguments or is it the Holy Spirit? Neighbors and coworkers, what's your plan to see the, the, the hearts of your neighbors and coworkers soften towards the gospel? Is it your apologetics or is it the Holy Spirit's work? And political enthusiasts, what, what is your plan to see the hearts of the people in your country changed? Is it your candidate or is it the Holy Spirit's work? Which is it? Let's be clear. We cannot do what only God can do. Only the Holy Spirit can change hearts and transform lives. John 6.63 says that it is the Spirit who gives life. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 1.5 that it is the Holy Spirit who brings conviction. Galatians 5 tells us that, that, that fruit is only produced through the Spirit. Again, we, can't, we cannot do what only God can do. We've got to leave that to Him. Only the Holy Spirit can actually change hearts. So when you find yourself surrounded by wickedness, put your trust in the Lord to do what only the Lord can do because he still works to accomplish his plans even in the midst of wickedness. Again, there is so much wickedness going on in Esther chapter 1. We'll see even more of it next week. But we've got to know that God is still working even in the midst of wickedness. So where is God working in Esther? Where do we see his unseen hand so far in this book? Well, for starters, let me drop this on you real quickly. We're not even aware of the big problem that God's people are facing in this book yet. We haven't even gotten to that part yet. There's, that's still a couple weeks away. Right now, all we know is that they are exiled in a worldly and wicked place, but God's still with them. God's still working. His unseen hand is still in control. God sees the whole picture. He already knows what's coming. He knows what's going on here because he is already even working a few steps ahead because just like a chess master sees the entire chessboard and is working a few moves ahead of his opponent, God sees the whole thing. He's already working. So far, all we know is that a pagan king threw a, a worldly party to show off how great he was and he tried to do wicked things with his wife and now he's making wicked decisions. We know that that, that queen refused to do what he wanted and now there's a job opening for queen of the Persian Empire. God hasn't been mentioned, but of course we know this is not a coincidence. All of this is God's providence. It's his unseen hand working through this story. We, we can track that. We can see it. None of the ways that God's working here might seem like headline news in the way that some of the stories of the Old Testament might, might seem to us where God's doing these big and awesome things, but God is still working. See, somewhere in this capital city of Susa, there is a young Jewish orphan girl named Esther. She's just going about her everyday business. She doesn't know what's going on. We're going to meet her next week, but God's got things in store for her too. But remember this, no matter how wicked a ruler seems, they cannot stop God from working. It can be scary when someone in authority has lots of wickedness and no holiness. You can understand that. That's true in government. It's true in families. It's true in the business world, and it's even true in the church. It's a scary thing when wicked people are ruling or have authority and they're full of wickedness but no holiness. But like the old hymn says, this is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let earth be glad. Friends, God is sovereign, and he still works to accomplish his plans, even in the midst of wickedness. 
trust that. Let's pray as the worship team comes. Father, we thank you that even in a very dark passage of Scripture, we can trace your hand at work. We can see you doing your work. You're accomplishing your plans, Father. We praise you for that. We ask this morning, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as their Savior, Father, that you would be drawing them to yourself. We ask that you would be working among us to break the pride and the wickedness in our hearts like we see in Ahasuerus and his advisors. We ask that you would encourage and comfort and be present with anyone here this morning who is in the terrible, living in terrible situations where all they are experiencing is being surrounded by wickedness, Father. To encourage them and have them sense your presence. Father, you are at work. Your work in this passage, your work even today, Father, we trust you for that. We glorify you and praise you for that. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. There we go. I have that problem every week, don't I? <laughs> As you go this week, uh, BCC, I want to encourage you again with uh, one of the verses that I asked you to keep in mind throughout this series last week. There's Romans 8.28, and I know it's very familiar to us, but let me read it for us quickly just so we know exactly what it says. It says again, we, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That's what we're seeing throughout the book of Esther. It's what we're going to continue seeing throughout the book of, the, of Esther. That even when we can't fully see what God's doing, we don't see him mentioned, we have a hard time seeing in our lives what's going on here. We can trust that God's at work. And trust that this week as you go forward. As you go, again, if you have any questions about the gospel or aren't sure where you stand with Christ, I'd love to talk to you for a few minutes. If you're visiting, I'd love to get to meet you for uh, just a, a few minutes here after the service. I'll be down front. As you go, uh, let me remind you, I was asked to remind you guys that to, as you leave, go out the back doors instead of the side doors uh, as we try to lessen the amount of people hanging around at any particular time. But as you go this week, go make disciples, BCC. Have a great week.